0: Hello. My name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the government's white paper on the governance of football. At one end of the professional games ecosystem in 2019, we saw the sad demise of Bury Football Club, one of the founder members of the Football League, at the other extreme we saw in 2021, six of England's biggest clubs sign up to a European Super League from which they could never be relegated, a plan from which they quickly retreated in the face of hostility from supporters. Somewhere in between, we have clubs like Newcastle United, owned by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, a country notorious for its human rights abuses. Check out my recent Byline Times podcast about that, with another dubious regime, Qatar, standing in the wings at Manchester United. What can a government-backed regulator do about any or all of these things? We'll be hearing shortly from Daniel Storey from the iNewspaper and Niall Cooper, CEO of Fair Game, which campaigns for better football governance. And full disclosure, I am an ambassador of Fair Game. Before we crack on, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's a brilliant monthly newspaper which features the best of our online stories and exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details about subscriptions over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then, Daniel. Welcome, Niall. Uh, Daniel, I was writing this morning. There was a time when Football fans were public enemy number one. I campaigned against the implementation of ID cards for supporters, which Margaret Thatcher's government wanted to make compulsory. Now we have a Tory government keen to show its fan-friendly credentials. What a change, eh?
1: Yeah, I mean, this has clearly been in the post for a, a very, very long time. And I think we should say up front that this is the very much the start of a process rather than the culmination, and you know, any reason for, for celebration yet, but it is a step in the right direction. The premises mentioned in that white paper are for the good. It's not, I don't think it quite goes as far enough as we'd maybe hoped, but I think it, it probably goes a long, long way further than we'd feared,
0: put it that way. And in terms of what might appear to be small things, but which matter enormously to supporters, like the name of a football club, the colour of its kit, where it plays. The White Paper proposes that there would be powers given to a regulator to ensure that supporters would have to be consulted on those changes.
1: And it also adds an element of ongoing assessment which i think is we've been crying out for 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 far far too long whether or not you consider that the the current owners sh- and director's test is fit for purpose or not and, and personally i don't think it is the lack of any ongoing assessment and therefore kind of mediation between p- stakeholders in that football club has been we've been absent for that it's, it's sad that we need this but we've had situations with football clubs being bought through leveraged debt we've had situations where owners have changed the the colour of the kit and and changed the badge without consultation and that's brought us to a point where now that needs to be regulated
0: I mentioned some of what might seem Niall to be the smaller things although I recognize as a football fan myself these are actually quite massive things the colour of your kit and where you play and so on what about the bigger issues of governance
2: yeah, I mean, we haven't seen that for a long time. And that's the problem when you start looking at how clubs have been able to be a bit more reckless when it comes to overspending and how they have had that ability to be kind of not caring about the the history and traditions of their club. And that's the bit that we really need to bring in. When you look at Sport England, they've got a very good code that operates for loads of other sporting clubs and rep Replicating that for football is something that's been recommended in the white paper. And again, it's, it's long overdue. I mean, what is good about the white paper is it it does pull, spell out a whole load of things that need to be, needed to be reformed and putting all in one place. Um, there are going to be a load of owners that are going to be thinking, oh, kind of being really worried about all of this because there's loads of stuff that's going to come in. But actually... What it means is better scrutiny. It means more well-run clubs. It means clubs that are going to become more sustainable long-term. And it means we don't go through this kind of reckless cycle where you have a number of clubs that live hand-to-mouth or basically don't live at all. And that's where I think we're going to be seeing significant changes. There are weaknesses in it. I have concerns about how much teeth the regulator is going to have. It talks at the moment of being advocacy first as their approach. Which just kind of has a bit of a red flag for me because it's that ability to talk things out and not to really address it. I think we need to be, it needs to be a bit more rigorous and a bit more strong if we're going to ultimately deliver the change that football has needed for a long, long time. Uh, And I don't think anybody should be scared of something that's actually going to have that scrutiny and the transparency that is required to make sure that actually it's well run. That's what you'd expect from any business in any other sector and i think football when it comes to governance should feel like it's immune from that
0: mm. one of the big structural issues that affects clubs is the inequality the financial inequality between the premier league and the rest so what difference can a football regulator make to that you've got clubs in the championship particularly desperate to get into the premier league because they see the broadcasting riches that are on offer there that tempts them to massively overspend and it's not a very long-term sustainable business model what could a regulator in practice do to affect that
2: i think this is one of the big, big problems of the proposals is at the moment, it's saying when it comes to the financial flow in football that that decision needs to rest with the football authorities. And when it talks about the football authorities, it actually really means the Premier League. So that's the uh, 20 billionaires who run Premier League football clubs and the EFL. And the EFL, their uh, own voting structure means actually that's really about the championship clubs and the top championship clubs. So you're not really talking about a holistic view about what needs to be addressed within football, and it does doesn't really encourage culture change. so I think where we needed to be a bit more brave was for that potential regulator to have at least set the framework of what is required from a football financial a fair football financial flow, and where we would look at that is this is an opportunity to incentivize good behaviour. And what we've been pushing for at Fair Game is the idea of rewarding the well-run clubs to so start looking at using the metrics that are out there on things like financial sustainability, on good governance, on um, equality standards, family and community engagement, and give money, more money to those clubs that score highly on that. That incentive is one of the things that would help deliver change. At the moment, we actually do have a bit of a stick about financial mismanagement there are you know you do see the occasional penalties you do see the occasional fines but it hasn't fundamentally changed the culture of the club of how football operates if you start rewarding the well-run clubs then and we've heard this from many other regulators and other sectors that's when you see culture change overnight and that's the one thing that isn't there so this whole financial flow i think the reality is that the white paper hasn't quite grasped it as well as it could do we're still in a consultation period and i think the pressure has to be to look at removing that from the vested interests of the premier league and the efl which for their own internal structures and the way they're set up makes it really difficult for them to speak as football for footballers our whole voice i think the people who run the efl the individuals are actually good people i just think they're they're hamstrung by the way that the organization set up (laughs)
0: And Daniel, one of the big issues in terms of this inequality in income distribution in football, and we should recognise, you know, that a lot of the money is generated by the bigger clubs and a proportion of that is distributed through the lower divisions and to non-league. It is a a structure which allows for income distribution, but the clubs lower down the league, not unnaturally, want a greater distribution in their favour. They also want to see an end to what are called parachute payments, where clubs drop out of the Premier League and are then given money for three seasons based on having been in the Premier League, which gives them a financial advantage over clubs who they're competing with and the premier league believes in parachute payments clubs outside the premier league cabal of clubs don't believe in it that's a, a seemingly intractable issue
1: uh, yeah it is because you can see the the validity of the argument whether you agree with them or not on both sides and the premier league's point is that without those premier league without those parachute payments Clubs are effectively demotivated from investing in their squad after promotion. They, they might as well take the money and run almost in that there is less of a risk of if you get that, broad, receive that broadcasting revenue, it can supplement the club for X number of years in the future. The Premier League would say, well, yes, but that damages our product if, if all that happens is that three clubs come up don't want to give out huge contracts or or extensive contracts to players, to new players, because if they go down, they'll then left to pick up the costs with significantly lower broadcasting revenues on the point of the the kind of disconnect between... And you're right, that the Premier League clubs, the biggest Premier League clubs, generate the most revenue. There's no doubt about that. And there's also no doubt that the rich are getting richer. Unfortunately, they are choosing to ignore the truth in all of this, which is that their league was formed off the back of a century plus years, of football operating in a different way. Manchester United have benefited from Grimsby Town in over the last 100 years. It just happened to be that at a point in time when that league broke away to the Premier League and the money rushed into English football, certain clubs were in a, a very advantageous and fortunate position. I suspect that they are not fully willing to accept the fortune element of that, I think they would probably like to think of that as skill. And it isn't all skill. Some of it was fortune.
0: And of course, they engineered that moment, didn't they, with the creation of the Premier League as well? That didn't just happen by accident. Something you've written about recently in the i newspaper, and I've broadcast a podcast here on Byline Times about it recently, is about the ownership of football clubs, not simply by wealthy oligarchs, but effectively by oil-rich or energy-rich states. So at Newcastle United, you have Saudi owners, at the Saudi Public Investment Fund, of which the chair is the country's de facto ruler, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. You've got Qatari investors looking to invest in Manchester United. And my reading of the white paper says that no matter what anguish cries people like Amnesty International might make about human rights abuses in those countries. There is nothing that a regulator would do to prevent investment from countries like that.
1: No, there's no there's no explicit mention of, of, of state ownership. And I think I don't think that is in any way a step too far. If it I had mentioned that, I think it's wholly appropriate that they disallow state ownership de facto or otherwise. I, I understand that in some cases, As with Newcastle, there would be an investigative process to to understand whether there was a separation between state and investor. My personal view is that that fell on the wrong side in the case of Newcastle United. The sad reality here is that fans have been asked or, or fans have pushed for this white paper because they see football's need for change. Unfortunately, at Premier League level, particularly with those elite clubs that are the subject of these state ownership takeovers, there are a percentage of those fans and it's it's higher than i would like it to be who would welcome that investment because they've been sold this dream that money is everything because trophies are everything and that the now is is more important than the long term future that makes me incredibly sad as a football fan and as a football writer but essentially we need to address that culture because if we don't address that culture then we're never going to get to the root of why x percentage of manchester united fans will have qatari flags in their twitter avatars on you know as we speak because They've been sold this dream that that is what they need. And I think it's based on a lie. On that, for me, it's that culture is the
2: real key thing. And it goes back to what we've been saying with Fair Game is this whole idea of starting to reward a different kind of culture and start to look in at the, the financial flows in football to be distributed in a different way that does look at good governance. When it comes to state ownership, I think one thing that's really missing there is that is not sustainable because say, for example, well, the Russia example is classic with Chelsea. It could be that we get a new government in and Saudi Arabia and Qatar suddenly become like, not friends of the state anymore. And we're kind of told that you shouldn't be, those those countries are not allowed to invest ridiculous amounts of sums of money into England and into Britain. Then suddenly, what does that mean for Newcastle? And what does it mean for Man City? And what does it mean for, you know, if Man United were to be bought by Qatar? Those clubs are suddenly financially in peril because of state ownership that's before we even go into the issue about human rights that are connected with it and equally with a state owner what happens if they no longer becomes flavor of the month from sports washing what if they suddenly change their policies that's quite likely in all of those situations is not a sustainable wonderful goal at all that is a really the wrong approach that have been been sold this kind of lie if you like and people have gone on with it that is where the culture really needs to address that we need to look at people started to think about this on a much more serious level and we're only going to do that with effective regulation and with effective incentives to say actually there is an alternative and better more longer term sustainable model that isn't what football's been sold at the moment as you say daniel it's all about i must win on saturday at all costs and at all costs means i don't actually mind if the people who own my club are busy killing journalists and treating women like shit
0: One of the difficulties, Daniel, as well, is that the wealth that is generated by the Premier League is based on its global appeal. That global appeal relies in part, anyway, on being able to attract some of the best players in the world to play in England. So the argument from the Premier League is, well, look, anything you do to damage that will make the Premier League or risks making the Premier League less attractive, killing the golden goose, effectively.
1: Yeah. And uh, my personal view is I've always been not cynical of the white paper, but certainly pessimistic to the point of (laughs) despair at times, because I I honestly believe we, we may well make progress on certain things and that is not to be overlooked. It's not to be sniffed at, and it's not to be ungrateful about, but the honest answer is, I think the horse has probably bolted with some of the things that we would like to see. I think if we were, if we were had our time again, 30-odd years ago, we would hopefully do things differently. It's very hard to put that cap back into the bag now because, as you say, these clubs are incredibly powerful. The ray of light, is they are not as powerful as they thought they were in terms of public sway. Even we talk about the European Super League attempted breakaway, they got a fright at that point. I don't think it made it go away forever. I don't think it made them consider that they need to be shy for the next 5, 10, 15 years but it did act as a reminder that they are not omnipotent which is a good thing but they are incredibly powerful and the Premier League is incredibly powerful and it's a very difficult sell to supporters to say this group of other clubs rely upon us being more generous is the wrong word but sharing our wealth more Um, redistributing what we believe is ours because the game relies on that it is becoming a more and more difficult sell to more and more supporters every year and that's a very hard thing to wrestle
0: with Mm. Uh, one big issue it strikes me with a regulator Niall is what do you do when a football club is in the throes of being badly run so supporters of my club West Brom are planning a march against the club's current owners, and Lai, at a forthcoming game. Supporters of a club down the road from me, Birmingham City, are concerned. There's an EFL investigation into the ownership of Birmingham City. And these are not isolated cases. Now, if a football regulator decides that a club is being poorly run within the terms that it sets as a regulator, what can it do? Isn't there a risk that by issuing points deductions, for example, that you harm the supporters, you harm the fabric of the football club whilst doing nothing to punish the rogue owner? Yeah, I mean, what you're looking at
2: is two things here, agent. One of which is they are looking at the concept, and I know it's been mooted, almost putting football clubs into a kind of special measures about looking at how that structure and that governance of that club operates is one of the things that's been mooted in the background. The big key in the difference is that we haven't had real-time financial reporting. We haven't had that kind of early scrutiny. We're in a situation uh, where there's a number of clubs that it's, like Daniel says, you know, if we had that time again, we would, you know, set them up slightly differently. We'd have been doing these things slightly differently. So then in the case of West Brom and Birmingham, it's kind of like you, the white paper and the independent regulator is arriving about two or three years too late. But there is that element of going, right, if we can put these processes in place. So if there had been good governance, if there had been real-time financial reporting, if there had been incentives for better being well run, then what's happening at, at West Brom, what's happening at Birmingham City probably would not have happened. That's the key that we need to look forward. What it means that what happens now, we've not got a regulator in place now, so we're relying on the existing structures to try and sort it out. If we did get to a position where you've got now we have a regulator in place, then those, both those clubs would be automatically in special measures
0: and they'd be one step away from losing their licence. But if you lose your licence, does the club lose its place then in the football pyramid? In theory, that's exactly what would happen. Um, and this so is that, but that's definitely... my point, isn't it? Is that, it's the, of course, the owner who may well have a financial interest in the club could potentially lose out if that happens. But of course, it's the supporters who ultimately lose out and who would care about losing out in the longer term if that happened.
2: This is where one of the things you talked about, the preferred bidder approach. So who's the people that can step in to take place? This is the bit about shadow boards and where you kind of look at, well, is there a A legitimate supporter organization is there a legitimate alternative that can step in at those places and that's where you need to have that when it comes to shadow board which is an still model i think needs to be fleshed out and perfected but it would be do those people have that skill set to take over a football club because there's no point having a fan group coming in and taking over a football club if they haven't got the skills to run a football club but you can provide that support, you can provide that training, that ability to make sure those people can step in. And I think that's probably where we need to move towards, the idea that you've got a fully trained-up alternative and then that process is in place early enough. Because what's happened too often is that we've got to a minute to midnight where there's been either somebody comes in or the club goes bust and they've just basically taken anyone. We need to be in that situation, Adrian, where we're not making those decisions at minute to midnight. We're making those decisions six months out or a year out so that we've got the right people coming in place to take it. So, Adrian, I haven't got a magic wand to solve the problems at West Brom or at Birmingham, and I wish I did. I wish I did. But um, unfortunately, I don't. So there are always going to be a few moments where clubs are going to be at risk, but hopefully this white paper will reduce that potential, that mismanagement, and we'll spot the red flags early enough. And we can intervene early enough to make sure that you never get to that mid to midnight moment where you're going to go, I'm just going to take any old person. And I've avoided swearing in Adrian. I think I did a stunning job.
0: (laughs) Let me just just finish by asking uh, Daniel, we'll go back right to the start of this conversation. I think there will be many people, Niles, no doubt one of them. I'm probably one of them. You may be one of them, Daniel, kind of disappointed that the regulator might not have all of the powers that we would wish it to have but it is progress i mentioned back in the late 80s campaigning against id cards when it seemed to me football supporters were only viewed through the prism of law and order now at least politicians, ministers and government recognise that football has a value to its community and it has a value which goes beyond the 90 minutes on the pitch on a Saturday afternoon.
1: Absolutely. And there are elements of victory in this. I think many of us perhaps cynically suspected that the Premier League would manage to smooth the edges of this white paper far more before it was released than then actually happened. That's brilliant. I, I consider it An initial victory for the little man for support and for supporters. They have something to hold on to in the face of what what at times feels like absolute power against them and puts them in a position of helplessness. I think it gives potentially gives them a leg up. That is to be celebrated. There is still a long way to go. There is still a lot of consultation to happen. I don't suspect we'll see the benefits of any of this probably until 24-25 season but it's a move in the right direction and quite frankly as a as someone who's been across the Premier League and a supporter of an EFL club for the last 15 years it didn't feel like we would ever get to this point it just didn't feel like a reality and it is now a reality in whatever form we get it I don't think it will be enough sadly but I don't think anything can now be enough because I think Sadly, you know, you're looking at, without getting too in deep about this, you're looking at football in its kind of last stage cap- capitalism phase where it is just a rush, a rush, a desperation for success, a desperation to spend more and more in pursuit of that success. And I think that's very hard to reverse.
0: Daniel Storey from the iNewspaper, thank you. Thanks also to Niall Cooper from Fair Game. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please think about taking out a subscription. You get more details over at bylinetimes.com. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.